Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. And tonight our text is chapter 2. Prophecy of Zechariah and chapter 2. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Let's ask him now to bless it to us. Father, please feed our souls from this, the bread of life, your very word. We pray that Christ would be exalted through the ministry of the word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this sermon, Come Home to Zion. Drew that theme out of the text, of course. But you know, not all homecomings are happy, are they? Uh, we wish they were, but uh, you know, sometimes if you're, maybe some of you have had this experience uh, where you go to a family reunion and it's supposed to be a joyful occasion where families all together, they hadn't been for a long time perhaps, but if there's tension or if there's animosity amongst family members, that can kind of throw a wet blanket on the whole thing, can't it? Or I've never personally been to a class reunion, but I suspect many of you have over, over the years, maybe gone to a class reunion, whether college or high school. Suppose you go to one of those and you're expecting lots of fun and lots of reminiscing and talking about old times, but discovered that over the years, uh, people's lives have taken such different turns that 
Nobody seems to be really all that interested in being together. And so what was supposed to be great fun ends up being kind of a dud or a disappointment. Uh, Apparently, in 1947, following the Second World War, Joseph Stalin issued a, a call to ethnic Russians who had been scattered around Europe and around the world to come back to Mother Russia, uh, no doubt with the promise of lots of good things to enjoy if they are repatriated to their homeland. But many of them, upon their return, were executed immediately. And then the ones that weren't uh, were consigned to the miserable clutches of Soviet communism for the rest of their lives. Not all reunions, not all homecomings are happy. But in our text tonight, we read about one that's very, very happy. The happiest possible homecoming there could be. Chapter 2 of Zechariah's prophecy contains his third night vision, as we're calling them. Uh, They contain words of comfort, words of encouragement for God's people. And these are words of comfort and encouragement for the people of Zechariah's day, certainly, and they certainly needed it when you consider their condition. Bedraggled people, recently returned from exile, struggling with limited resources to rebuild the temple of God, still under the authority of the Persian Empire, the Persian government. So these are words of encouragement for them and certainly had application for them. But they're also words of encouragement for you. They're words of encouragement for Christ's people in every age, including for us today. I think the basic message of this vision, the whole sum of chapter 2, is that the Lord loves and gathers and cares for all His people. That's what this vision is teaching. Zechariah and his contemporaries, and that's what it's teaching us. The Lord loves, gathers, and cares for all of His people. And the three points I'd like to bring out from the text, uh, mostly from verses 1 through 5, we see this idea of measuring Jerusalem. It's not the only place in the Bible where that concept comes up, and those other places are going to help us interpret this vision. Uh, Verses 6 through 9 speak of that wonderful homecoming and God's call to his people to come home. And then finally, verses 10 through 13 speak of the gospel to the nations. So first of all, measuring Jerusalem. Zechariah sees the vision of a man. And this man has in his hand a measuring line. He used measuring lines when you're engaged in construction. So it would be very natural for Zechariah's hearers to associate this vision with the construction of the temple in which they were presently engaged. There were some very important building projects that lay before the people of the post-exilic Jewish community, and the first and foremost of them was rebuilding the temple. But beyond that, there was also the sad fact that the whole city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The wall had been completely broken down. So there was a lot of work to do. And if you, in in the midst of a people, in circumstances like that, were told of a vision of a man with a measuring line, you would associate it, wouldn't you, 
with the building projects that you had going on. That daunting task, first of all, of reconstructing the temple. But when Zechariah asks the man where he's going, he says he's going to measure not the temple, not just the temple or the temple site. He's going to measure the city. He's going to measure Jerusalem. Now, this is just one, like I said, of several places in Scripture that involve a vision of measuring either the temple or the city of Jerusalem. If we think about some of the other examples that Scripture contains, I think the most striking one is actually one that I've read recently in my own Bible reading. It's the one in Ezekiel. Because towards the end of the prophecy of Ezekiel, for four whole chapters, an angel is showing Ezekiel a vision of a temple, a new temple. And he's giving them the dimensions of it, but not just the, the footprint or the floor plan, but of every little vestibule and window and door and chamber in the whole temple. And this goes on for four chapters. Then, in Revelation chapter 11, the apostle John sees the temple and he's commanded to measure it. He's given a measuring read. And he's, John said, John's told, go, measure the temple. Measure the altar as well and the people who worship there. Now, if we take into account these and other prophetic visions where measuring of Jerusalem or measuring of the temple and so forth are, are, are shown by way of prophetic vision, it seems clear that the real concern of these visions is not some kind of architectural dimensions. What these visions are really about are a redemptive message from God. Some kind of redemptive message is conveyed by the measuring of Jerusalem or the measuring of the temple. And yeah, in Exodus, God gave dimensions of the tabernacle and they were very specific and they were uh, given to Moses because it was Moses' job to lead the people in the construction of the tabernacle. God was going to have this beautiful tent in which his presence would be manifested in the midst of his people. So yes, that was definitely architectural in nature. But these prophetic visions, including the one we've seen right here in Zechariah, they're not about construction. Rather, they're about God's watch care over his people. They're about his protection of them. They're about his love for them. We find out that the future of God's people is going to be bright. It's going to be brighter than they could possibly have imagined. Especially considering the circumstances they were in at the time. And that's conveyed for us by the fact that this young man with the measuring line is going to measure Jerusalem, but the angel sends another angel after him. Run after that young man. It says he, there's this urgent message, right? One angel says to the other, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. It's almost as if he's saying, Hey, stop right there. Don't bother measuring Jerusalem. You won't be able to do it. 
and there won't even be a wall because there are going to be so many people there. For the city to be without walls indicates, as the text makes clear, it indicates that the population is going to be overflowing. Not only of people, but of livestock. That's imagery of prosperity, tremendous prosperity. And in redemptive terms, it signifies an undoing of the exile. The people have been sent away into a foreign land because of God's wrath against their sins, but now he's bringing them back and he's going to bless them. He's going to multiply them. So there won't be a wall. They'll dwell as villages without walls. So the next logical question, if you're, especially if you're a person living in the, in the 6th century B.C., is, uh, well, if there's no wall, how will the city be protected? And the answer is found in the next verse. When God says, I will be a wall of fire all around. What an awesome image that is. God himself surrounding his people with protection. And the point in all that for us is that as the people of God in any age, in every age, if God is with us, with or without walls, we are secure in him. To use the words of Psalm 46, God is in our midst. We shall not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now again, think of what what tremendous comfort this vision would have been to the people of Zechariah's day. Because at that time, Jerusalem didn't have any walls. The Babylonians had torn them down. And Nehemiah hadn't come along yet to start that work of rebuilding the wall. Jerusalem is a complete waste. No protection of any walls. But the Lord God of hosts spoke those uplifting words, I myself will be a wall of fire around you. It speaks of the fact that God knows his own. And he watches over them for good. That's what it means to measure the city. God keeps track. No one escapes his notice. No one falls through the cracks. So that's measuring Jerusalem. Then we have some verses about homecoming. Some of you may, on an occasion or other, have gone to a homecoming football game or a celebration at your high school or college alma mater you know, homecoming, right? It's a special event in which the alumni, people who have been in the past part of the student body, and they come back, they come home, so to speak. Well, there's a kind of homecoming for the Jews in the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, when he told the Jews, as many, as of, you, as, many of you as desire, go back to your land, and rebuild the temple of your God. The king issued a decree that any and all Jews in his whole realm who wished to return to the land of their origin could do so, and many of the Jews did. 
Ezra tells us that more than 40,000 Jews returned to the land, but there were many who didn't return. And, you know, we can be critical of those people who refused to go back to the land of Canaan, to the promised land that had been given to their fathers, but it's understandable, maybe not excusable necessarily, but it's understandable why many of them didn't go back. One of the reasons is that by that time, most of the Jews, the majority of the Jews who were living in exile had been born in exile. They'd never known anything else. They wouldn't remember going into exile because exile, exile was all they had ever known. So, God acknowledges the reason why they were where they were. He said it in our text, I spread you abroad to the four winds. It was his discipline, his fatherly, divine discipline, his indignation against the sins of his people and the sins of their fathers that had cast them away into the lands of the north. But now he's saying, I'm ready to welcome you home. I'm ready to bring you back. And that's the point of the summons that we see in verse 6 of our text. It's a call to all the Jews who hadn't yet come back. And he says to them, up, up. There's this urgency about it, you see. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. The people had been spread abroad, just as the text that tells us, but now the Lord says, it's time to come home. Come home to Zion, the city of God. Escape to Zion, as it says in verse 7. And here God announces again, in a different way, that he's going to provide refuge for them. He's going to provide sanctuary for all his people. He's calling them to come within the security of that wall of fire he's going to provide for them. That wall of fire that he himself is going to be for them. And he calls them from the land of the north. Now it is true that God's people had been dispersed to many nations. Uh, some even had gone down to the south into exile in Egypt uh, over, over the years. But uh, by and large, the northern kingdom that we call Israel, they went into exile in Assyria. And the southern kingdom, Judah, when they were carried away finally into exile, they went into Babylon. Both of those countries are to the north, at least by way of uh, approach. So if you were in Israel, if you're in Palestine, and you were going to go either to Assyria or Babylon, you headed north first, even though technically those lands were to the east. Because if you tried to go east, you were going to go through this uh, non-passable, gigantic desert. That's why people went north first and then down to get to these lands. But because when... If the people wanted to go that direction, they had to go north. When the armies invaded, they came from the north. These are called the lands of the north. And so that expression, the land of the north, it becomes a reference, a symbolic or figurative reference, to nations of powerful enemies of God's people and places of exile. Now remember, by the time Zechariah was prophesying, there wasn't any more Babylon. Babylon had been defeated by the Medes and Persians. 
But in metaphorical terms, the name Babylon, even as we continue on through Scripture and on into the New Testament, the name Babylon takes on an increasingly symbolic significance in Scripture. Eventually, the name Babylon becomes shorthand for all people and all nations who are opposed to God. And God is now summoning His people to come home from the territory of their enemies, of His enemies. There's a very similar call we find in Revelation through the Apostle John in which the Lord calls His people to come out of Babylon. At that time, there certainly wasn't any literal Babylon. Babylon was four empires removed by that time. They were long gone. They were old history. But the symbolic reference is ensconced in the book of Revelation. And in a way, that even kind of ties all of the Scripture together. What I mean by that is, if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, the nations of the world rebelled against God and His authority there. God had told them to... Uh, to go out and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But instead, they kind of hunkered down and they huddled together. They said, we're going to build a city with a tower up to the heavens and we're going to make a name for ourselves. Of course, you know how the story ended. But that city that they tried to build and did build became known as Babel. We always talk about the Tower of Babel. But the, they named the city Babel. Because there, God confused their languages. And Babel is the mother, we might say, of all rebellious cities. And God's people in every generation are called to come out of her. God calls His people to come home. Well, that then brings us to our third and final point, the gospel to the nations. You can already see from what we looked at so far that how expansive the meaning of Zechariah's vision really is. You can already see how it looks far beyond those returned exiles in Zechariah's day. Verses 10 through 12 are full of cause for rejoicing and uh, that call of rejoicing or call for rejoicing flows out of that homecoming invitation that we've already heard. And then when we come to verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Meaning, this homecoming will be a happy one. Not all of them are, but this one will be. And what will the underlying cause be of this joyful singing? It's that the Lord Himself will be there. He will be there and He will dwell in the midst of His people. You know that? God in the midst, that's the most basic of all the covenantal blessings. That God calls a people to be His people and He says, I will be your God and I will dwell among you. That's the reason and the motivation for building the tabernacle in the days of Moses. God commanded Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And that tabernacle, as when they were in the wilderness, uh, 
it was always set up right in the middle of the entire camp of the nation of Israel. And it represented God's presence with His people. So God entered into relationship with the people of Israel to be their God and to take them as His people and to be among them. And here in Zechariah, we see the blessings of the covenant being restored. This is gloriously good news. God's saying, I'm going to be with you again. I'm going to be among you. But it even gets better. Verse 11 says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. These blessings, in other words, are going to overflow Israel and go to other nations, other peoples, to the nations of the world. That's the promise of Abraham, isn't it? Didn't God say to Abraham that in you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? The prophecy of Zechariah says many nations will be joined to the Lord and they, these nations, will be God's people. All of them. And God will be in their midst. And the word of the Lord by Zechariah has been fulfilled. This prophecy has come true. Because in the first place, the fulfillment began even in Zechariah's day. How so? Well, Matthew Henry pointed out, and I quote, the Jewish nation after the captivity multiplied very much by the accession of proselytes to it that were naturalized and were entitled to all the privileges of native Israelites and perhaps were equal in number. And then going on from there, in the new covenant, the gospel drew people from every nation Right there on the day of Pentecost. Read it, Acts chapter 2. It says there are people from all the nations under heaven present. And the Holy Spirit fell. The church was born. And there was already an international church from the start. Then Jesus had his message sent out to all the earth. By his blood... By the shedding of his blood, Jesus purchased for himself a people from every tribe and nation and language and people. And even now, he's gathering them to himself. He's calling them out of the midst of Babylon and joining them to his church. And it will help us to correctly understand this passage if we observe that the Holy Spirit calls God's elect to come out of Babylon when in reality there was no Babylon. Remember? That's clearly the case in Revelation Revelation 18.4. And it was already the case in Zechariah's day. Babylon as a political entity or as a empire or as a world power had already, by the days of Zechariah, been conquered and destroyed. Babylon is what we could call the city of man. A symbol now. A symbol of human defiance against Almighty God. And in the same way, as God's plan of redemption unfolds, Jerusalem becomes the city of God 
in a sense, of which Augustine spoke of the city of God. It becomes a symbol of all those who are united to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So when verse 12 of our text says the Lord will inherit uh, Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem, yes, there was a near-term fulfillment of that as the people repopulated the land and the city there, Jerusalem, as a physical city was rebuilt along with the temple. That's the fulfillment that people saw in those days. But the greater fulfillment is still in store, as we see in the New Testament. That's what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Galatian Christians and said, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. It's what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about when he said, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Jesus himself spoke of it when he said to the church at Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And John saw a vision of that new Jerusalem. He saw it coming down from God out of heaven. And that's our home, yours and mine, chosen by God and precious. <clears throat> the oracle that we see here in Zechariah chapter 2 closes out with a solemn word. Look at it again, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It's reminiscent of the words we saw in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. These are words that put the people of earth in their place. Or they should put them in their place because the Lord of the universe is working out his sovereign saving purposes. He does all his good pleasure. No one can say to him, what are you doing? No one can stay his hand. If the people of the earth had any sense, they would stop their raging. They would be silent before the Lord. They would tearfully confess their sins and repent and plead with him for mercy. Well, let me close with a few words of application. First pertains to those verses we saw, verse 6 and 7, where he's calling the people to flee from the land of the north. Verses 6 and 7 of our text are a call for Christians, a call for us to be separate. Babylon is no longer a physical city, but it is a spiritual one. And all who are apart from Christ all of your unsaved friends and loved ones, all the unconverted people of the world, they dwell in Babylon. And if you are in Christ, you must come out of Babylon. We must at present live in the world, but we must not be of the world. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are to be a people set apart. We live among and we are to love and be kind to the people of this world, but we are not to be of them. We're called to be different. We're called to be holy. And then, because of that, let's remember that we all were at one time lawless. We were all at one time in darkness and unbelief. But sinners need not stay there. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God receives as His people, He calls them His people, any and all who join themselves wholeheartedly to Him through faith. He will say to those who were not a people, My people. In Zechariah 2, God's message to His people is a message of love and of assurance. He was telling them, just as He tells you now, that the Lord knows those who are His. And not just in the sense of awareness. Divine foreknowledge and election are not matters of bare consciousness of your existence or affirmation that you're chosen by Him. Foreknowledge means that before time, God loved you. Foreknowledge means that He has loved you with an everlasting love. And you can take tremendous comfort in knowing that divine love, which is from eternity, will never fail, but will endure to eternity. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you who know the measurement of Jerusalem, you know the measurement of the temple and those who worship at your altar. We thank you that you know us and that you love us. Help us to take comfort in this. Help us to rejoice in the prospect of our great homecoming. And Lord, as we continue to dwell in this present age, may we vigilantly come out of Babylon and come to you and be a people set apart for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.